0: So as we do this series we're doing, The Big Story of the Bible, we're kind of taking a, a broad look at the Scripture rather than zeroing in all the time. And so we're going to cover a lot of ground. If you are doing the reading plan with us, and, and I want to you know, invite you to, to do that, the 100 essential verses, we still have some of these left. There's some at the Information Center. I've, I put some over in the Mission Hall as well. Uh, it, the passages for the first five sections actually very much fit with what we're doing today. So if you've already started it, great. If you haven't started it yet, it's not too late to, to jump in. So as we get going on this, I have a question to start with. And it's some, some, a question I think we in upstate New York should be able to answer with, with with ease. What is the greatest waterfall in the world? So there could be dispute over this. Other people may not see it the right way. If you're asking what is the tallest, you actually got to go to Venezuela, where Angel Falls is the tallest of the, the big waterfalls, the tallest waterfall in the world. If you're kind of going with like the biggest in the sense of like wide and height combined, you got to go to Africa, Zimbabwe, with Victoria Falls is, is, fits that description. But if you're going with the greatest in terms of the, the, the most powerful, the most amount of water flow, then yes, Buffalo, New York, or maybe across the border in Canada, The Niagara Falls is the most powerful of all the waterfalls that there is. So here's the connection. Today we're talking about the fall of mankind. And in the fall of mankind, sin came into the world. Sin came into human beings and it corrupted everything. It corrupted the whole of creation, the the entire world, based on this one decision that that took place in Genesis chapter 3. It brought corruption within humanity, that God's image was broken. And I would suggest from a theological perspective, Genesis 3, the fall of man, looks like Niagara Falls. This one decision that has had powerful effects through the, the generations of a man and has changed everything. I know, it's sad. It's such a sad thing. One decision... You know, I, I, someone had, had left this up for, me, up for me here, and I think they left it up last week, and I'm not very observant. I didn't even see it. So, uh, but this fits now, because we're talking about the decision to eat one piece of fruit, changing everything in, in the created, God's created world. But today, I want to take a different perspective. I want to look at this as a narrative. Event, not so much theologic. And what I would suggest is when you read the story from Genesis 3 to 11, the, the fall of man actually looks a little more like these waterfalls in Vietnam. It's called the DTN waterfall. And you see that, you know, there's major fall, another fall. It, it steps down. And what I see in this, this story is four decisions. And each one leads humanity further from God. And so that by the end of it, humanity has lost all knowledge and connection with God. So I'm going to look at these four human decisions that were made that lead away from God. And then one decision by God to get a new start and to begin the road back. So that's where we're headed today. That's what we're going to be looking at. And so we start with the first decision, one that my guess is, everyone has heard about. And it's that, that decision by Adam and Eve, and the specific decision was to transgress the boundary set by God and eat the, the forbidden fruit, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, that God said to them, you should not eat. The, the, that it was not yet time for them. And, and Nick, a few weeks back, talked about how, how the de- deception of this, the serpent, In other words, God's enemy in the guise of a serpent came, and the role that that played. What I want to look at today is the decision itself that they made. And first of all, we've got to start with Adam and Eve lived in Eden. They lived in a perfect environment where they had access to everything they needed. They didn't need clothes, they had plenty of food, and even more, they had the tree of life which meant they could live forever with God. And God would come and talk with them and interact with them. There was no distance, no barrier between them and God. They were given the job of working the garden. And I suggested last week that God's plan was, in Eden, he would train, by training Adam and Eve, he would train humanity how to, to, to rule over the world as he had said he would wanted in Genesis 1. Eden was a training ground, that eventually that would expand. And maybe they would get to the point where they could eat from the tree of good and evil, but they were not ready yet. And so God had said, this one thing don't do. Don't eat from that tree. And that is the one thing they chose to do. They, they said, this seems good to them. It was attractive to the eyes that the tree was desired to make one wise. And it was good for food. They could not see the reason why God said no. And so they decided, what could be wrong with this? I will choose myself. We will choose for ourselves what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. We don't need to listen to what God says. That is the essence of sin. That's the picture. I will choose for myself what is good and evil. We're not punished as human beings, for their sin, for what they chose to do. Instead, the the situation is every person after Adam and Eve has made the same decision. We all have said in our hearts, I'm going to choose for myself. I don't need to listen to what God says. I know better. The consequences you could read for yourself as you go through that, but you see clearly it introduces a barrier between them and God. The first thing they did is they hid from God. And then God ultimately says, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. And so now life will have a, a time span attached to it. They lost access to the tree of life as they were evicted from, from Eden, and so they became subject to death. So that was decision number one that led humanity far farther from God. What's interesting is God says, you know, death is now in play but they didn't they wouldn't have known exactly what that looked like until the second event and that is when their first two sons Cain and Abel Cain kills his brother Abel and so the decision is to allow sinful anger to rule in our heart and strike out against a brother so in the text it talks about how both brothers brought offerings to god to worship so god is not completely away from them there's still some connection they come and worship god and in fact god speaks with cain and for for reasons we don't know cain's offering was not considered acceptable people have different thoughts on that my thought is simply it probably came with a grudging heart that God is very concerned with the heart with which we bring an offering to him, not just the sacrifice itself. And so God says, next time you could do differently and your offering will be accepted. But God then warns him in this phrase, sin is crouching at your door. God could see into the heart of Cain and see what he was thinking, into the anger that was building. And Cain, rather than hearing the warning he, he allowed that anger to rule and he could, could not strike against God, so he struck out against his brother instead. Sin is crouching at your door. The same is true for every person since. Inside of our heart exists sinful desires, anger, rage, lust, greed, gossip, boasting, And we all have to, in order to do what is good and right, we have to resist those passions. We can't just follow our heart because our heart will lead us astray. And we have to say no at times to the passions within so that we could do what God would want us to do. What are the consequences? How does this play out? God says there's a price to pay for this. Cain becomes a restless wanderer. He goes off into the world. And he finds a wife. We, we talked some at our Sunday school class where we're watching the video. <laughs> like, where did Cain get his wife? It doesn't tell us. It's, it's one of those questions pastors get asked all the time. There's things in the story that the text just doesn't tell us. So there's things we don't understand always, but there seems to be other people around. In fact, Cain was immediately afraid that there would be other people who would kill him when he was kicked away from his family. Um, so what happens? Cain leaves. He builds a city. And as you read through Genesis 4, you'll see new things. There are new technologies that, that develop. It talks about the blacksmithing, you know, learning to work with metals, and also musical technology. and different. So new technologies. It talks about a growing number of descendants, many descendants. The other thing that happens in this is polygamy they rather than follow the pattern given in Genesis 2 of one man one wife they begin to marry more than one person and so you have polygamy beginning to develop and then along with that
1: is they follow
0: the pattern that Cain set a pattern of violence
1: so the way of
0: Cain involves these these activities that's what develops within the world and to give one quick part that it says in Genesis 4, one of his descendants is Lamech. And Lamech gives a little speech to his wives. And every time I hear this speech, I read it, I cannot help but think of Coney and the Barbarian. So you tell me if this fits, imagining what what Lamech was like. So he, he has two wives, Ada and Zillah. And he says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. It's so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've worked on that really hard. Declare it. No, he's declaring that he's already killed at least one man, maybe two in that, and then threatening his wives if they dare to cross him. That becomes the, the way of Cain, the way of those descendants. Is all hope lost? At the end of chapter four, we have this thing. It talks about Adam knew his wife again. Meaning they, you know, got together. And and they they bore a son, another son, and his name was Seth. And, and actually, Eve praises God for, for giving her another son. And it says to Seth also was a son was born. And he called his name Enoch. So, in other words, another line of, of people are going to start to exist. The line of Seth. They're going to, you know, from Adam and Eve. And and here's the key verse. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's still a connection. God and his people are still worshiping him in this. And then that leads to decision number three. This is is the one that's Let's put it this way. There's the most difference of opinion on. So Genesis 6-2 says this. says the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. That one verse has probably spurred more papers than, you know, not any other, because... Genesis one one spurred a lot of papers, but but man, you get you get some great debates on this, and so I'm going to give you one common interpretation of this, and then I'm going to give you my take on it, so you can decide. You don't have to agree with me. This is all in fun, but I find this fascinating to think through. So the the common pattern is the sons of God referred to here are a a um. Some sort of semi divine beings, mainly angels of some sort. And these, these angels are spirits of, or beings of spirit. And so these spirit beings have, they mate with the daughters of men and begin to have children. And later in the passage, it talks about men of renown, these Nephilim. And so somehow the, the offspring of these angel humans kind of are almost like supermen who then bring about a wickedness in society. So that is one of the interpretations. And it, they connect it oftentimes with the angelic rebellion that's referred to in different places in Scripture, especially Revelation 12. So the, the, it's connected to the fall of the angels in this thinking. The, other, the strongest reason for believing this interpretation is that sons of God in other places in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, are referred? To, they are referring to an angelic being, not human beings. Now, you get to the New Testament, it does talk about us being revealed as sons of God.
1: So there does get to a point
0: where sons of God refer to redeemed human beings. So that's the strongest reason for that argument. Here's my take. My take is based on a narrative context interpretation. In other words, I am following the story from Genesis 4, 5, and 6. Genesis 4 talked about the descendants of Cain, the violence, polygamy, all that stuff. Genesis 5 follows the descendants of Seth. And it says of those descendants, they continue to walk with God at different points, and so what you get, it says Enoch, well, I'm sorry, uh, Adam had a son in his likeness. So we're referring to Seth. And so Seth is in the likeness of Adam. So a son is to be in the likeness of your father. But remember, human beings are made in the likeness of God. So we're meant to be sons and daughters of God.
1: And it goes on to talk
0: about how some of the sons of Cain walked with God. And specifically it mentions Enoch. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Another mysterious verse, but it seems to say that one guy, at least, of St. Seth's descendants was so close with God that God said, come on up here, and, and took him to be with him in the eternal realm. So here's my theory. What this is talking about, when it says the sons of God, it's referring to the line of Seth, that had continued to maintain worship of God,
1: that continued to know God at least to some
0: extent. And so these sons of God, it's kind of a community, right, maybe separated from the descendants of Cain. So the descendants of, of, of Seth saw that these, there were among the daughters of men, among Cain's descendants, there were some attractive women, and they decided to intermarry. Instead of maintaining the community that was separate from Cain's and their their way of doing things, they began to integrate, began to intermarry. Note how it says, and they married any of them as they chose. Might that mean they, they decided to marry as many of them as they chose? That they, they started to practice polygamy.
1: And instead of looking for
0: someone who would
1: you know, a wife that would help them stay
0: connected to God. They, they just went their own way. And what I see this is the sign that the last community of people who were trying to hold on to God, giving up. And what would that produce though?
1: So the thing I didn't mention
0: is that in Genesis 5, when it talks about the descendants of Seth, they live crazy, long lives. Like you ever hear Methuselah? Methuselah, I think, lives to 969. Uh, Adam had lived to 950.
1: And they continued down the road to, to
0: live these long, super long lives. Noah lives to be 950 years old. So what would happen if you combine these crazy long lives with a society that practices polygamy and violence? Great wickedness. And so I believe when it's talking about the Nephilim, it's talking about, it says, men of renown. It's talking about almost like these warlords who, who because they lived super long, they could take as many wives as they want. They are having children all over the place. They were controlling things.
1: And it was such a wicked and evil society.
0: God said, I can't do this anymore. This ain't going to work. And God has to deal with the society into it. That I kind of, of picture it as a Mad Max world, if you've seen those movies, where, where there's people constantly fighting one another. God deals with this ultra-violent and oppressive society by, first of all, the flood.
1: There's no fixing it. It's, the evil is so interwoven
0: that you can't redeem it. You can't bring them out of it. And so God has to start fresh. And you might, again, know the story. Noah
1: was the only one that survives Noah and his
0: family and they, they rebuild another one but God does a second thing in this he makes a second decision and that is to limit human lifetimes to 120 years the text says that I I will you will number the days of man at 120 years so now it's not going to be these 900 some years now what's interesting is you'll find through Genesis that 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 declaration by God in Genesis 6 takes a while to work its way through because they, you know, Noah still lives to be 9, 9, 905, 950. You've you got to get down. Abraham lives to 175. Isaac, 180. Um, so many, many generations later, Jacob is 147. Finally, it's Jacob's son Joseph is under 120. He's at 110. And Moses lives to be one. Or 120, I'm sorry. So you see God's will gets worked out, but, but slowly you see that change in lifespan. I talked about you know, the actual decision, but what is the mindset that I think we face even now? And, and it's simply, we, we as Christians, follow, followers say we still have to have this choice. Do we build our life on the patterns of this world or do we see God's way? You know, I think part of being a sinful human being is, is we're going to always live in a world that is going a different direction than what God would lead us and So we're always under that temptation to build our life on the ways of this world rather than build it on, on God and our relationship with him. So that, that was a long one. The fourth one I'm going to preach through a little quicker, and it's another infamous story in the Bible, well-known story in the Bible, and that is the Tower of Babel.
1: And the decision is rather simple.
0: is that they would build a tower to the heavens to seek fame and renown by building a tower up to heaven. So post-Noah, you have a whole group of people. They start to form cities, and the city they form is Babel an early form of Babylon. They develop a new brick technology of baking the bricks. That enables them to build higher and higher. And they decide, let's build all the way up into the heavens. Could be, are they thinking like, we can get up to where the gods are? Because that's what they pictured back then. Could it be they they thought, well, if we get up there, we're going to live forever. You know, they'll be like gods. The text states their reason as being is to make a name for ourselves. God simply says, not on my watch. He's not going to allow this to happen. And I love the way he frustrates their planes. He, he could do it plenty of ways, right? He, he could have used a lightning bolt to take down the tower if he wanted. Uh, he could have done numerous things. But what he does is, is he, he confuses their language. See, There's something they take for granted that they don't realize is from God, and that's their ability to communicate. And that ability to communicate is part of how they're able to do such a large building project with multiple people.
1: And that that gift from God is language. That's one of the things that we have
0: because we're made in God's image, the ability to speak. It's it's hardwired into our brain.
1: Babies are ready
0: to learn language. They just got to see it and, and learn how to put it into practice. They think they're doing this on their own power and technology, but they fail to realize they're really relying on God even for that.
1: And God doesn't take away their language.
0: He just confuses it. He mixes up their languages so they all speak different ones. And what happens is they end up scattering and the project is left unfinished. So that's the decision. The, the, the mindset that I think we still face today is to seek Renown and build a name for ourselves rather than living a life that strives to honor and glorify God. Right? I want to build a name for myself and do something everyone will talk about. That desire is built into human beings. We want to be known and infinite or famous in some ways. And what the result of that is at least uh, competitive relationships, broken relationships as people compete against one another for status and attention. If someone else gets the attention we don't, then that tick us off a little bit, right? If someone else gets a lot of likes for their Instagram photo, do we feel a twinge within us that says, well, what about me? That is built into human nature. I want to compare briefly, what were the citizens of Babel trying to do Versus what the Messiah, the Son of God, would do—Jesus. They were seeking a name for themselves. In Philippians two, it talks about what Jesus did. It says, "Who, the one who is in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but instead he made himself nothing, rather than trying to lift up his own name." Which think about. It. But the miracles that Jesus could have done, could he not have built a pretty good name for himself? Right? He he could have, you know, been really, really popular. And at times he was. But that's not what he was thinking. Instead, he made himself nothing. He came as a servant. He never used his miracles for his own needs, only for that of others. And then he took the ultimate step. And he humbled himself. And Went all the way to death to, to be obedient to his father, even death on a cross—the most shameful way to die.
1: You were lifted up on a cross so that the people can point at you and and mock
0: you. And because he took that step, what did God do?
1: Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name
0: that is above every name. What were the citizens of Babel seeking? Let us make a name for ourselves. Jesus shows us if we want to follow in his way rather than the way of this world, what do we do? We don't seek to honor our own name. We take the lowest spot. We, we come and humble ourselves. We serve. We, we follow what Jesus did and follow his pattern. And we trust that in his time. God will honor our name. God will lift us up when he sees it.
1: So those are four human decisions
0: that people made that left them further and further from God. So that at the end of Genesis 11, the knowledge of God is I would say almost completely lost. In humanity at that point there are no people who are worshiping God Almighty. Instead, they're worshiping idols and the pagan gods of the ancient world. They didn't know about a true and high God. Instead, they're, they're worshiping Zeus and Jupiter and Thor and Marduk and all these others of and Baal. And, and if, if God would have just shown up then and tried to fix things, what would they have thought? If God would have showed up in, in form, they would have assumed he was one of these other gods. He couldn't do it that way. In fact, there's a point in Acts when the Apostle Paul and Barnabas do a, do a miracle, and what do they think? They think, oh, it's Zeus and Hermes. So God has to approach humanity very carefully
1: in order to teach them about himself. And so what God decides to do, God's decision is to reintroduce himself to humanity. He's going to start
0: new. And he's going to start with one man. Abraham. Actually, it's Abram, but God later gives him a new name of Abraham, meaning father of nations. And God says to this, this man, it says, I, I want you to leave your family, leave your heritage, and move to a place that I will show you. Come and trust me. I will give you this land to you and to your descendants. Moreover, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. See, God's plan is that by picking this man and teaching him about himself and beginning this long process,
1: he ultimately
0: would would reintroduce himself to humanity so that people could once again know God and know his ways.
1: God says, I will
0: bless you, and then through you, I will bring a blessing to all peoples. All nations will be blessed because of that. And Abram makes the choice to trust this God. He goes. He leaves what's comfortable. He leaves what's known. He leaves the place where he's always lived and, and the society, the advanced society of northern Mesopotamia. And he goes to the land that would be known as the Promised Land. Canaan, eventually known as the land of Israel. And so he shows his faith by deciding to trust his life to this God. That is the decision that we all have to face as well. So I mentioned the four different mindsets that come. I think these... Give us a picture. of What does it mean to be a sinful human being? What is, the, what is the theological consequences of the fall of mankind? And it's that each one of us has these these mindsets that we have to address in our lives. So mindset one, I will choose for myself what is good and evil, what is right and wrong for my, my life. Mindset number two, sin is crouching at our door and it desires to have us.
1: That there's this passions within us
0: that we have to... to to not listen to, or else they would lead us to do damage to the people around us.
1: Mindset number three, to build our life on the pattern of this world
0: rather than seek God's way. Or mindset number four, to build a name for ourselves
1: rather than seeking to
0: to honor God in how we live.
1: Those
0: mindsets, those, those decisions are a part of being human beings. The other choice we can make is to trust our life to God. And the one God sent, Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. In Galatians chapter three, it says, when we trust our life to Jesus, to Jesus Christ, we belong to him. So it says, and if you are Christ, mean we that's no the what's that called? Means possession. Apostrophe, yeah. Apostrophe means that it means we belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, because you, we, we belong to him when we trust in him, we give our life to him. If you belong to Christ, then guess what? You also are part of Abraham. You are Abrahams. Right? The same thing that Abraham did, you've done. You, you've shown your, put your faith in God. And if so, then you are heirs of the same promise. We become part of the story that started with Abraham where God is working to redeem redeem and reclaim for himself humankind that had been moved far from him because of our sin, now we can know God and know what he's like and live with him for eternity. That's the story you're going to start to read as you go through Genesis. The question I just want to leave you is really simple. What would making a decision to trust your life to Christ look like for you? Have you at some point in your life made that decision? That you said, Lord, I'm still learning about you. I don't know everything, but I'm going to trust what I know of myself to what I know of you.
1: I'm going to follow your ways
0: and not my own. And I'm going to put my faith in the Son of God who gave his life for me, that I can be forgiven of, of my sins and, and walk with you. That offer is, is here this morning. That offer is wherever we're at. And that's the invitation of the Lord, today. If you've never made that decision, I encourage you to, to give thought to that. What would it look like for you to trust your life in the hands of Christ? If you're thinking about that, or you want to talk to someone, or have someone pray with you, we, uh, Gary mentioned we have people that are up here specifically for that purpose, to pray with anyone, to talk with anyone who's, who's considering that decision. It's worth investigating. Let me pray.
1: Father, I thank you that when we kept walking away from you, you did not give up on
0: us, but that your son came that we might be brought back. Lord, help us understand as we read the story in the Old Testament how, how what happened way back then fits into your plan in our life. Help us understand what it means to trust in you and to trust in your son. And Father, we do want to know, what it looks like to follow you. We do want to seek your ways and not the ways of this world. Help us overcome the this, this sinful inclinations in our heart that we might live lives that, that honor and glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.